This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, the Fed lowered interest rates yet again. We're going to be taking a look at that, see where we are and see where it's headed. We have the repo market. Now, let's be honest. How many of us were familiar with what the repo market is prior to two weeks from now? I don't think many. We're going to be looking at what the repo market is, what the Fed is doing with it, and why it has investors concerned. And then we have one of my fellow YouTubers here, Tech Lead. He made the news on CNBC. Ex-Facebook engineer posts YouTube videos mocking the culture and joking about how he was fired. So he worked at Facebook and Google as an engineer for both of those companies. And he has some interesting things to say about these companies, specifically their culture and I think some insights that investors would want before taking a look at these companies. And then, of course, we have a portfolio update. I'll be going over my main passive income portfolio as well as my Roth IRA and answering some of your guys' questions. I'll start with the portfolio update here. This is a portfolio based around having an extra stream of income, an additional stream of income, passive income. And I accomplished that goal through a combination of interest and dividends. The main strategy that I'm implementing here is called dividend growth investing. It's become pretty common to do this strategy for individual investors, and it's something that generates an additional stream of income. Now, the broker I'm using is called M1 Finance. There's a link to it in the description for people that want to view my portfolio and look into all the holdings. There's links where you can go and click in and see every single holding I have. So I could go into finance here and I could see all the different financial holdings. You'd be able to see the same things and and it might give you some ideas of different companies to look at. But the idea behind this portfolio is quite literally to create an additional stream of income. Some people have completely different goals with theirs. My goal is to create an ever-growing stream of income as quickly as possible and have that continually compound over time. Now with this strategy, the primary way that I earn this income is like I said, through dividends. Now, a lot of people outside of the investing world, they might not have too much of an idea of what dividends are or really how they work, but you get a better idea of them when you start to learn about investing. But I feel like even in the investing world, there's a lot of confusions of what dividends really are. Like I got an email, this one is from Frank. He says, Good morning. My name is Frank and I'm a new viewer to your YouTube channel. I've been very interested in the passive income you're talking about in your dividend stocks. So my question is, when you get paid your dividends, can you put that cash in your bank account instead of going back into your dividend stocks? How liquid is it? Thanks for all the info, Joseph. Great YouTube channel, by the way. Okay, so do you see the questions regarding dividends? You know, can you put it in your bank account? Uh, how liquid is it? Are, do you have to reinvest it back into the companies? I think that people have some different idea of what dividends are because the name is kind of funny. You know, they don't really know how to view it. Dividends are just income. It's money that you've earned. You're part owner of a company. The company makes profits. If they make enough profits, they have excess profits. They say, you know what? We don't need this much money to reinvest back into our business. We're going to go ahead and pay out our shareholders a little bit of that cash. I'm going to go ahead and just to break this down, even on a more basic level, I'm going to show a video clip that explains a little bit how dividends started and and how they work. People often talk about profit sharing as a way for workers and employees to gain a stake in the success of American businesses. In a world with weakened unions, how will workers get a cut of the profits? 
employees overwhelmingly like the idea of profit sharing as a regular part of their pay. But there's been a way for the public to share in corporate success for more than a century. A dividend. Literally, dividing the profits. Here's how it works. You find a company that offers dividends. Then you buy their stock. And wait. Usually, each quarter, the company pays out a small part of its profit to shareholders, something like 10 cents a share. It doesn't sound like much, but over time, that money can really add up. As long as you own the stock, you'll get paid. So there you have it. If you own the stock, you're going to get paid. They say in the video, quite literally, that a dividend is divvying up the profits of the company. That's all it is. Now, Frank asks, you know, this passive income you're talking about, can I transfer this to my bank? How liquid is it? How does this really work? This cash right here is cash being paid from these companies. The exact same as I get paid from my salary. It's cash that goes on the account. And yes, I could transfer this easily to my bank account. This isn't invested back into my portfolio until the market's open and I willingly choose to purchase more stocks with it. It's very simple. The money that you earn from dividends is pretty identical to your salary. The major differences between the money that I earn here in cash from my portfolio and the money that I make from my salary is I get taxed a lot higher on the money I make from my salary. That's the biggest difference between the two. The only other difference that I'll mention is I work a lot harder for the money from my salary. The money that I earn from this portfolio is almost entirely passive. So those are the two biggest distinctions. The money that I make from my salary, I have to work harder for, and I pay more taxes. The money that I earn from my portfolio doesn't take hardly any work, maybe a little upkeep, and it's more favorably taxed. Everything else aside from that, Frank, is almost identical. I could go and click on this right here, and I could say, do not auto-invest my cash, and I could hit that right here. And do you know what will happen once this saves? Auto-invest is turned off and my cash will just continue to pool up. Those $150 to $200 a month that I'm earning through dividends, it'll just continue to gather up here as cash on account. It's insured on this account and I could withdraw this money anytime to my bank account connected with this brokerage. That's how simple it is. That's really it. Now, people ask, why do you do investing strategies based off of income? You know, if you're going to just reinvest the money, why do you care if you get income or not, or you just hold companies that are pure growth and they don't return any capital to you through dividends? Well, one of the main reasons why is because, first of all, I like the way that this portfolio with the balancing system automatically puts money into underweight holdings. So any one of these companies that drops down, like if I go to the previous week here, You'll see some of them are in the red, some of them are in the green. And this changes all the time. It's like whack-a-mole. Different sectors will be in the red and green every single week. And this money that's paid in dividends automatically goes to the ones that are in the red, the ones that become underweight. So right there, as the week-to-week fluctuations, it's like I'm always kind of buying the dip that way. That's one part of it, but there's a greater reason why I focus on income. If you look at different studies and different things that connect wealthy people, they have something in common. This here from uh, CNBC, it says, an author who studies millionaires, how to create wealth like the rich. Over my five-year-long study of rich habits, for which I drew conclusions from surveys of 233 wealthy individuals on their daily habits and compared them with 128 lower-earning individuals, I learned that most self-made millionaires generated their income from multiple sources. And then it goes on to tell the statistics of how many different sources of income they had. It says 65%, this is speaking of the 233 wealthy individuals, 65% had three streams of income, 
45% had four streams of income, and then 29% had five or more streams of income. This article goes on to explain how to create multiple streams of income, but you'll notice that there's the same type of word being mentioned here over and over again. Acquire knowledge that you can use to start up a side business or that can help you intelligently invest your money in assets that generate passive income. In assets that generate passive income. What do you think all of these are? Every one of these are companies, they're companies or bonds, otherwise called assets that generate passive income incrementally all the time in the background for me. Again, over here it says invest, 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 grow additional streams of income. It says reinvest. Reinvest that cash flow to either grow the business or invest that cash flow in other side businesses or assets that generate passive income. That is quite literally what you're doing with this portfolio is if you're just working one job, if you have your one nine to five job that you're working and you're making your whatever, you know, your average salary type of thing, this is making it so that instead of having one form of income, you're having two, you're doubling the amount of income streams you have. The best thing to do is try to increase that as many times as you have. So if you have your normal job, try to get some kind of side hustle and then the money that you make from your normal job and your side hustle, roll it into this form of income. That way you have two different sources of income and then you're creating a third one with this passive income stream here and then you have three forms of income. And all of a sudden it goes from, wow, how do people have three forms of income to you having one? It's not impossible to have three forms of income. Have a normal job, you have one kind of side hustle that you do, and you invest using a passive income stream like the portfolio that I have, all of a sudden you have three different streams of income, which 65% of the people that they studied of these wealthy individuals had. That is something that I think is a goal to shoot for. Now I'm showing you how to make one passive stream of income. There's plenty of YouTubers out there that show you how to do all sorts of different side hustles. We have like a whole... You know, they call it the side hustle economy. There's lots of different jobs you can pick up. There's lots of different like Uber type of things. Right now, I make some money with my YouTube videos. I do lots of different development projects on the side. I have a, you know, a, a job that I work. I have different streams of income. If one of these income streams cut down, I would be okay because I'd be able to jump to another one. If you just have one right now, that's okay. There's nothing to worry about there. It's not urgent to go out and get different streams of income. But if you start a portfolio like this, you have two. If you pick up any kind of a side job beyond this, you have three. I recommend at a minimum having three because this one as a second one is very easy. You don't have to do much to have this one. And if you have a side hustle beyond this, you can really start to add money to this fast. Now, the fact that I even have to state this next thing, I think is kind of dumb. It's obvious, but I like making as much income as possible. That's something that I enjoy. I like making as much money as possible. And I realize that the more money I make, the more I'm going to pay in taxes. That is a truth that I'm going to have to accept, that as you increase in income, you're going to pay more taxes. You'll hear people say, avoid income portfolios because they have a certain tax burden on them, right? That's not something that I've seen to be true. I've noticed that throughout my life, when I first started making money, I was in a very, very low tax bracket. In fact, it was a tax bracket that you didn't even pay income. I got 100% of my earned income back in income taxes, right? The only real taxes I paid were like sales taxes. But as far as income, I didn't pay any taxes. Well, life would be great, right? Not paying any taxes. The issue is I was probably making about $16,000 a year. And that wasn't a really comfortable living. That's not something that I want to be in forever. I've noticed that throughout my life, Every single year, as I paid more and more taxes, I've seen a trend of me making more and more money. That's the consequence of making more money and having additional income. 
is you pay a little bit more in taxes. I much more enjoy the side of having a higher tax burden and having a lot more income than the side of not having a tax burden because you're not making really any money. That's the, you know, each of them have their pros and cons, but I want to be on the side where I have three, four, or five streams of income. And as a result, I might pay a lot of taxes, but that's because I'm making an enormous amount of money. That's the direction I want to head. Now, that's the same thing with, you know, I, I've talked about like how my dad made his money, right? You can look up the average salary of a law enforcement officer. It's not anything special. You're not going to generate a tremendous amount of wealth just earning that money and spending it. But what he did was invested it into rental income properties. And each one of those rentals, they paid income. That income was used to reinvest back into other income properties. He went from one stream of income, which was his primary salary, to two when he first bought his first apartment, to three when he bought his second, to four when he bought his third, and so on and so forth until he owned seven at one point. And all those stream of incomes, when you have seven apartments plus your primary job, that makes it so that you're generating a lot of income. That makes your tax burden also much, much higher. But would you rather be in the situation where you have your one stream of income, you have your limited taxes, or you have eight streams of income and you owe more in taxes? That's exactly how I view this. I want to create as many different streams of income as possible. I want to keep purchasing as many productive assets as possible. That is the entire goal of this portfolio. So how much income has this portfolio been generating? We can take a look at the last 30 days. This is the one month view here. If I go down, earned dividends, $151.24. I check this every like week or so, and it bounces right now between about $150 to $200. That's what it's generating. Now I will say, $56,000 value in the portfolio. I have recently put a bunch of money into it, like like three or $4,000 into it. And that takes time until it catches up with the dividends because you buy the shares, you have to cross through the ex-dividend date, and then you have to cross through the payout date. Sometimes that can take like up to two months after initially purchasing before you see the first dividend reflect that. So this number will go up. It is lagging behind the portfolio value, probably by like a month or two is what I would say. Now, I have this graphed out on a chart that gives you more of an eagle eye view, where when I first started the portfolio, January of 2018, no dividends earned. And then as I've grown the portfolio, reinvested the dividends, I, you can see the different amounts I've made. The highest month I've ever had was July, $166. It went down a little bit last month in August to $114. We'll see this trend continue to go up. I have the spreadsheet that I can link in the description for you guys, but this will allow you to plug in your own numbers and see the trends that you're doing. This graph right here, the gray line shows my actual numbers and the blue lines are projections based off of that. So the blue line gives you an idea of what direction it's heading. Now I'll go ahead and I'll also show my Roth IRA. So this passive income portfolio right here, this is in a taxable account, has no limits to the amount of money that I can add to it. That's why I'm building up this portfolio. The Roth IRA, of course, is a tax protected account. None of the gains in this portfolio have any kind of tax consequences to them. None of the dividends, none of the capital gains, anything. So all the gains are, are tax-free. The caveat is you have to hold this until you're 59 and a half. That's the big kicker there. So um, you can open up a Roth IRA as well. I recommend doing this first if you're going to open up either or a taxable account or the Roth IRA one. You may as well open this. It just has that $6,000 contribution limit every single year. But right now, this is performing really well as well. I mean, we have made $400 on it. So I put $7,000 into this and we're up about $400. Now, the difference is, is 
some people ask why I have different strategies here. Part of it is I wanted to show that you can implement this dividend investing strategy in two different ways, and I think they're both really good. I don't mind doing it either way. My other portfolio is all broken out into these different pies. Each pie has different holdings, and it's all individual holdings that I've handpicked. The Roth IRA is all broken into ETFs. These are based off of index funds. They're exchange-traded funds, and they're the popular thing right now. They're really great financial vehicles to put your money into. Um, you just got to make sure you pick decent ETFs. So all of these follow the same methodology that I use. All of them have the underlying holdings. Every single company that these hold pay dividends. It's a mixture of high-dividend-paying stocks, monthly dividend-paying stocks, real estate, and then some bonds and international bond exposure. So a lot of it pays monthly, a lot of it pays quarterly, but it's pretty great because I just see this money and dividends roll in week after week, September 9th, September 6th, August 30th, you know, it just goes on and on. And I see these deposits come in and then they get reinvested when they're any amount over $10. So that's the nice thing about the M1 platform is the fractional shares, but that gets reinvested back into the portfolio and put to work completely tax-free. And a lot of this also goes to personality. If you're the type of person that wants to be really hands-on with your investment, I recommend something more closely to my main portfolio here. You can use the same structure and then change the holdings to the ones that you want. If you want something that's totally hands-off, like you literally just set it and forget it, you know, you don't have to do anything with it after initially setting your portfolio up, this is where I would use the ETF portfolio, where you pick out these different funds, you weight them how you want, meaning I have like 35% into VYM, 25% into SPHD. You just give them the different weightings and then you put your money in. You never have to look at them again. I could leave this portfolio for 10 years and come back. It would have managed itself during that time. I wouldn't have had to do anything with it. So this type of portfolio is for people that do not like picking individual stocks. You want to follow the same basic strategy of dividend investing, passive income, but you don't want to have to pick your own individual companies. This is a really great option. I would actually recommend going this route if you're brand new to investing and you're, you know, you're kind of second guessing the companies that you're buying and that type of thing. You can still accomplish the same goal of having a lot of dividends and, and being able to earn this passive income without having to pick the companies yourself. That's what this portfolio is. I think it's really good. And there's a, a link in the description again that you can check out this one as well. All right, let's go ahead and go into some news now. The first thing I want to go over is, of course, the Fed lowered interest rates again. That is the news that happened last week. It was somewhat expected, but I want to take a look at this in context of President Trump saying, you know, he wants the Fed to lower interest rates even lower and just a lot of different motivations going on here. So first of all, on the right of this graph, we can see that the interest rate was lowered to a target rate of 2%. Before that, it was steadily climbing up, and the Fed has reversed course with that. Now, if I go over to here and take a look at a different graph, this line right here is the Federal Reserve's interest rate. Underneath it, it has what president was present during that time period. You can see that it was down during like the 2000 recession when Bush first entered, and then the Fed quickly raised it back up, actually really quickly, and then we went into a recession, and that was the worst recession we've had for a while, the 08-09 recession. And then the Fed rate dropped down to zero. That was during President Obama entering his presidency. Most of the things that were happening during the recession, the tools that the Fed used were already in place. They've already started doing quantitative easing. They've already lowered the interest rates down to zero. A lot of the banks that we could bail out during that time, we already had buyers and people in line to bail those banks out. Now, Obama took over as president, 
And during that time, the interest rates kept zero all the way up until the end of 2015. Since then, they were bumped up a little bit. When President Trump entered office, the interest rates have steadily hiked up since then. So keep in mind that as a president going into re-election, you're very interested in having a strong economy. I think it would be difficult for any president to get reelected with a weak economy. And whenever you hike up interest rates, that puts more restriction on the economy. When you lower them, that allows for a lot of cheap money, and it usually is stimulatory to the economy. Now, if we go to this other graph here, this is a whole different graph. This shows the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. This is how much quantitative easing or quantitative tightening the Federal Reserve has done. You can see during Bush, we didn't have a lot of quantitative easing going on. The Fed had less than a trillion dollars on its balance sheet. Since the recession, towards the end of Bush's term, the Fed started to aggressively buy up assets and increase their balance sheet. They did this to stimulate the economy. They continued this all through President Obama's first term. They started to taper it off towards the end of his second term. So if you look at these two graphs, it gives a little bit of an idea of President Trump's frustration with what the Fed's doing because... The way he's viewing it is that, you know, during President Obama's term and during Bush's term, they were able to have all these stimulatory actions. The Federal Reserve rate was brought down to zero. The Fed was increasing its balance sheet, all things that stimulated the economy. And then during his presidency, they're doing just the opposite. They're unloading their balance sheet, doing quantitative tightening, and they're increasing the interest rates. So he wants interest rates to come down. He wants to have the strongest economy he can going into elections so that he can get reelected. So this gives a little bit of the motivating factors behind what President Trump is saying to Jerome Powell. Now, having said that, there's a lot of speculation of whether Jerome Powell is being influenced by President Trump to lower the interest rates, you know, whether he's doing this for political reasons. I don't really think so. I, you know, listening to Jerome Powell, I don't really peg him as that type of person to listen to political influences. So I think he's actually just doing what he personally thinks is best. Now, having said all of this with the interest rates being lowered, that can cause some concern with investors, it means the economy is kind of weakening and the Fed wants to, to counteract that. But that was not the most concerning thing to investors that happened in the past two weeks. That has to be the repo market. And I know a lot of people have been reading up on this, the repo market, what it actually is. So to put this in simpler terms, right here on my brokerage, I have borrow. This is a, a feature of M1. I could go right here anytime and hit the borrow button. And then M1 will look at my credit. They'll say, oh, you have a great diversified portfolio. And they're willing to lend me $19,600 based on my portfolio value. And I have that money as cash. So let's say I'm in a situation where I have an expense come up and I don't want to have to sell off my long-term holdings of these dividend paying companies that I have making me money and working for me. You know, I don't want to mess with that, but I need cash just to make this payment right now. I can go in, borrow this money at a low interest rate, I could enter in the amount I want, hit continue, and that will be transferred right to my bank. And then that, I can pay off the loan. Then when I get my next paycheck or whatever, I could pay this back with the interest. That is very similar to how the repo market works. It allows banks that work like investments, just like we're doing with our portfolio, to keep fully invested. And then when they have some unexpected expenses, like they have to pay a lot of taxes in combination of a lot of, a lot of different bills coming due, and it's more than the cash they have on hand, they can take out a simple short-term loan. Well, that happens just fine normally. And normally the interest rate's right around 2%. But as you can see on the 16th and 17th, it spiked up to 10% because nobody had money to lend each other. The banks didn't have enough funds to lend each other. And the Fed had to step in and inject $80 billion into this market. So this has a lot of people concerned of why in over 10 years of never having to do this, the Fed has had to jump in now and, and inject all this money. And they're continuing to have to do it for multiple days. So this is an issue 
with our liquidity, with our banks, a lot of these investment banks that we're seeing surface now, it has a lot of investors kind of spooked. Now, the Fed, they're they're saying that they handled this properly, that there's really no long-term issues, and they're trying to paint this as something that's nothing to really concern yourself with, right? But they're also saying that this isn't quantitative easing. A lot of investors are saying, you know, you might name this something else, but this is quantitative easing. The Fed is buying up assets from banks. That's quantitative easing. In fact, if we look right here, this is the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. This is the same one I showed you, but this doesn't have it correlated with who was present during the same time period. But as you can see, this was during 2015, 2018. They start to sell off their balance sheet. And then if we go right here and I zoom in, you can see that right here, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet went from about $3.7 trillion to $3.8 trillion. So that is quite a jump in a short amount of time, injecting $80 plus billion into the market by buying up these treasury notes and these different assets. A lot of people are talking about that being quantitative easing, and the Fed is not only lowering interest rates, now they're saying that they're doing quantitative easing. So now all of this is causing a little bit of concern, but when I actually look at it, not that much is happening with the market. If we go back past five days since when this started, the market's pretty flat. I don't think investors are too concerned about the lowering of the interest rates or the repo market right now. Um, I have been asked emails and stuff of what I think of it, and I think it just needs to play out a little bit longer. If this is going to be something long-term, if the balance sheet is going to continue to go up and up, or if it's something where it is just a technical thing that they're doing right now, and they will be able to offload the balance sheet once this is done. So it's something that we're just going to have to wait and see on this. Next, I want to talk about this YouTuber here. Facebook? No, not so much? Well, maybe you should have thought about that before firing me. His name is Patrick Shayu, and he's an ex-Facebook engineer, an ex-Google engineer. He was actually fired from Facebook. And so it's interesting to see a couple videos after that him make about Facebook, where he talks in depth about Facebook culture, about what it's like to work there, and some internal problems that the company has. And I think it gives an interesting insight that most investors on the outside wouldn't be able to have with how Facebook operates internally. Now, having said that, he was fired from Facebook. So a lot of the things that he's saying about Facebook, you have to keep that in mind as he's talking about it. This is somebody that left the company, not on good terms, and as a result, he is you know, causing Facebook a lot of trouble on media. He catalogs how the company functions with its employees, how they run the company, how they figure out what features to do, and he rips apart a lot of the internal organization of Facebook. On one part, he talks about how different products and features that are added to the company are decided by a popularity contest, just like the Facebook wall feed and who gets the most likes. If you're into popularity contests like that, if you thrive in that type of environment, then you would probably do pretty well there. Sometimes it feels like nobody's really listening and everybody's shouting. And then the more senior engineers who have a lot of influence, they have a lot of followers actually. So when they post anything, then everybody likes their post. And then you essentially evaluate the soundness of an argument by how many likes that they get. It's not really based on logic, it's based on that popularity. In another part of it, he talks about how Facebook is already such a huge, mature platform that a lot of the employees' time there is just completely wasted. They're they're trying to come up with different projects to do because they've already done everything they can think of. And he talks about how different teams end up working on the exact same thing, and one of the teams will have to just scrap their entire project. And you know, Facebook is a very mature product these days, so it's pretty tough to figure out something new to add to it. So people are just scrambling around trying to figure something that they can do and what happens is you actually have a lot of teams working on the same stuff either that or people may be working on projects that just suddenly get canceled because 
people later on realized that they didn't even want to build this thing. There was no real reason to do that. Another thing that he mentions is the overall culture of the company, how they have all this elegant art everywhere, and it's very political in nature. Nearly every single piece of art is political in nature. It is about, say, LGBT pride. It may be about immigration, equality, gender-free politics, all of this diversity stuff, which I'm all for. You know, I think it's great. I just think it's a little bit too heavy-handed there. Now, I think it is interesting to get his opinion, even though... I think you just have to take it with a grain of salt. The fact that he was fired from the company is going to give him a more negative look on it when he's going back and reassessing how the company's running. Now, I like getting a, a more inside look of how these companies work, how their culture works. I like when I, you know, when I look at companies like Costco, I get an idea of how they treat their employees, how they run their business, all that type of stuff. I think that that's a huge factor in deciding what business to invest in. Facebook is probably not a company that I would invest in, even if they paid a dividend, even if they went past that initial screening process of do they pay a dividend. I probably still would pick other different tech companies over this one. It was just released today that Snap detailed Facebook's aggressive tactics in Project Voldemort dossier. This dossier, this document was different things that Snapchat chronologued about how they think they were treated unfairly by Facebook. And they gave this to officials and the officials have launched this antitrust investigation into Facebook. It says it chronologued Facebook's moves that Snap officials believed were a threat to undermine Snap's business, including discouraging popular account holder or influencers from referencing Snap on their accounts on Instagram, which Facebook owns. Executives also suspect that Instagram was preventing Snap content from trending on its app, the people said. This is stuff I totally believe could happen, that Facebook would alter Instagram's feed so that it only shows stuff from their own platform. I think most of big tech companies do that. I think Apple does that with their search results. They just got in trouble, got a little bit of heat for doing that. Um, I think Google does it with its YouTube trending list. I think Instagram will absolutely do it with its own platform and put it above it. These type of investigations, I know, keep these companies on their toes. And it's probably a good thing overall to make sure they're not violating antitrust laws. All right, that's enough on Facebook. Let's get to some questions here. josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com. You can email me at josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com. The first one's from Charles. He says, I bought GE at around 33 per share. Most of my investment is now worthless. Could you do a show on what to do if you are so far down? Should I sell for a huge loss or wait? Dividend now is one cent. So sad. All right, Charles. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. That is not a fun situation to be in. This is part of the reason why I've said this before, that if companies cut their dividend even a little bit, I will strongly consider selling them right at that point. And, you know, you might have to look at the overall situation, but it's a good indicator that the company's struggling. Most of them know that cutting their dividend is kind of a last resort. It's going to take a huge hit on their stock price. And so they do everything they can to avoid it. So when the company even cuts its dividend the first time, a lot of times I'll really look at it and make sure that it's not going to have one in the future. If I think there's any chance it will continue to cut its dividend, I will sell it with the first cut. If you would have sold GE with the first time it cut its dividend, that was on November 30th, which it would have been a loss at that point. You might have been down 20, 30%, depending on when you bought in. At the worst point, if you bought in, you might be down 40%. But if you would have sold right then during their first dividend cut, you would have avoided having a 70% loss. So that is a huge difference there. That's why I would have tried to sell right here at this first cut, gone on to a different company. Now, as far as the situation that you're in right, as far as the situation that you're in right now, I would sell the company and move on. That's what I would do in this situation. I don't think that one cent is really a dividend. I think it's just more symbolic at this point. And there's not a whole lot that gives me a ton of confidence in GE right now. 
I would put my money and efforts into other companies. I would erase the past, not worry about it, and use it as just a learning experience, something you can look at. When a company cuts its dividends, really look at the company, make sure that it's really going to be moving in the right direction going forward. Companies do not cut their dividends for no reason. Next question is from Jonathan. He says, hey, Joe, I have a question about your holdings. I was wondering why you have so many when Warren said you shouldn't have really more than 20. I appreciate the fact that you say not to exactly copy your portfolio due to everyone's risk tolerance. That's very important in my opinion. And I started to do my own trimming myself because I'm curious of why you have over 50. So Jonathan, this is a very good question. Uh, Part of it has to do with the fact that it's just fractional shares. So it's very easy to add more companies and have it fractionally invested into it. But right now, I should probably not have the 55 companies that I do. In fact, I'm probably going to be trimming off some positions in the future. So I've been going through looking at what companies I want to hold and which ones I want to sell. And I've come up with a list of about seven different companies that I'm holding right now that I'm going to be considering selling. Now, Before I do this, I'm going to make a separate video going over these different seven holdings and any ones that I find between that time and see what your guys' opinions are. Everybody will be able to kind of give their input, see if they think it's a good idea to sell these ones or not. I'm interested to know the community's thoughts on it. So I am going to start trimming the portfolio a little bit. As far as the actual data on this, what the experts quote unquote think, you should have anywhere from like 10 to 20 companies. Beyond 20, once you get up to like 20 or 30, the benefits of diversification get really diminished on that point where now you're just managing more companies. You usually have a little bit more fees associated with it, especially if you have a platform where you have to pay for transactions. But 10 to 20 is typically good. I want to get mine down to at least 40. That's my goal. But I would have to sell a lot of companies that most of them I've made money on. So I'm going to be going through and really considering which ones I'm going to be trimming off. And we'll be talking about that in future videos. All right. The next question is from Chad. He says, hi, Joseph. First of all, I love your videos. Keep up the good work. Uh, thank, thank you for that, Chad. He says, now on to my long-winded question. I've been investing for a few years now, but still consider myself a novice. I do my due diligence and research while also focusing on large blue chip companies to mitigate my risk. In the quest of learning more about investing and increasing my research efficiency, I started to utilize subscription-based investment research tools. The two I utilize are simplywall.street and simplysafedividends.com. They offer really quick snapshots of the company's performance, and I feel like they're a good complement to my due diligence and research. What do you think of such tools, and do you utilize anything like this yourself? I'd love to hear your thoughts, and such tools are more specifically. I'd love to see you check out simplysafedividends.com, as it seems to be right up this channel's alley. Also, do you ever go by Joe? Thanks, Chad. Yes, to people that I'm around, some, some will call me Joe for short, but... Formally, I usually go by Joseph. I don't really care what either people call me. So I'll respond to either of them, Joseph or Joe. Now, Chad, I have seen Simply Safe Dividends. I have no idea what simplywall.street is. So I'm going to have to get back to you on that first website. Simply Safe Dividends, though, I signed up for the trial. I went to the website. And by the way, I have absolutely zero affiliation whatsoever with this website. But I did sign up with the trial when I was doing research on dividends. And I have to say, I was really impressed by the research. I thought it was very thorough. Uh, I like the way that the website's laid out. They have a whole ranking system of the safety of a dividend. So if you want to know if a company is going to continue paying a dividend or how they rank its safety, that's what the whole website is about. It's research of 
if this company is going to be able to continue paying their dividend. So the whole idea of Simply Safe Dividends is protecting your income stream, making it so that you can sell off companies long in advance of them cutting their dividend if they're at risk for it. So you avoid situations like the one Charles was in, where he has held on to a company down to where it has a one cent dividend now, right? Simply Safe Dividends would have told you to sell GE a long time ago. Now, having said that, I completely agree with you that this is would be a great addition to the channel. The downside is, is that this website for the actual membership costs $400 a year. So if you look at my portfolio, last year I made like $1,200 in dividends. So one subscription to this website eats into a lot of my gains there. Now, personally, if this was just me and I didn't have a YouTube channel or anything like that, I wouldn't really consider a membership to this website unless I had well above a $100,000 portfolio, probably $150,000, $200,000 to where I think it would actually be worth the money. But I've actually considered signing up for this website, paying the $400. I would have to kind of figure out if they'd be okay with me sharing some of the research they do on the channel here. So I haven't sorted that out. But if I'm able to get solid research that these guys do on these different companies and see which ones have entered that range where it goes below 40 on it, which means that they're in danger of cutting their dividend, that might be something worth considering. So what I'm going to do, Chad, is I'll contact Simply Safe Dividend, let them know I run this YouTube channel, and see if it's okay if I share a little bit of their research on it. I don't want to like violate any of their terms. But if they're cool with that, I think I might go ahead and sign up for this. The next question is from Hologram. I don't think that that's the real name, but that's the, the email. So Hologram says, hey, Joseph, I'm curious how M1 Finance works when it comes to tax season. I've heard a few things about the rebalance feature. So if you could touch on that, that would be great. Also, what are the overall taxes and what qualifies as a taxable event? I've heard other YouTubers say that dividend stocks bear a much greater weight for taxes than companies without dividend. I don't want too much trouble down the road when filing taxes. Thanks. All right, hologram. So like I explained earlier in this video, you probably, you may have already had this question answered just with the beginning of this video, but dividend income along with the dividends that you get paid by your, your bonds paying interest, those are dispersed through dividends. That money is income. You're earning money. So yes, you do have to pay some taxes on it, but it's different than when your portfolio just goes up or down in value. That's an actual stream of income that you can do whatever you want with. You can put that in your bank account. You can pay your bills with it. You can save it up and put a down payment on an apartment if you want. That is an income stream. Now, if you compare that to your actual salaried income, you're typically taxed a lot better with dividend income. Most dividends are qualified dividends, which are taxed at a 15% rate. So that's 15% taxes, no matter how much money you make with your salary. But if you compare those dividends to where you get capital gains, a lot of times the capital gains are more tax efficient if you hold them long-term because you don't have to pay taxes on capital gains until you sell. So if you hold a company, it doubles in value over 10 years. You only pay taxes on that at the end of 10 years when you sell it. That's capital gains tax. Now, as far as making your taxes complicated, Doing any kind of investing is going to add complexity to your taxes. So the way to keep your taxes as simple as possible is just have your W-2 from your job. That's your only income stream and your taxes will be very simple. You'll just be able to do it in TurboTax, no problem. What this will do is make it so you have to add in your investments to your taxes. This is something that if you don't know how to do, it's really good to figure out and learn because any broker that you use, you're going to have to learn how to do the taxes with it. But I use TurboTax. It wasn't too difficult. It just walked me right through it. I did what's called a tax summary. So I didn't have to put in individual data. I just put in about 20 different cells worth of data. And that summarized all my different taxable events from my M1 portfolio. From there, I didn't have any problems. I haven't had any issues since filing my taxes. 
Alrighty, that's going to be it for today. Uh, again, you guys can email me, josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com or contact me on Instagram or Twitter. I have both of those in the description and I will catch you guys next time.